0: Welcome to the MGO Show. I'm your host, Sal Domingo, and joining me today is the founder and contact manager at Bionics for Everyone, Wayne Williams. He has a long career, or he has had a long career, in data analytics software development, but found his passion for technology in Bionics to help people with physical and neurological disabilities. Today's episode is brought to you on behalf of the Amputee Coalition of Toronto, a peer support group committed to providing advocacy and support for those in the limb loss and limb different communities. April is the Loss Awareness Month, and this episode is presented on behalf of Amputee Coalition of Toronto's Education Program. In this episode, we will do, be discussing the different bionic processes for upper extremities. Welcome to the show, Wayne, and thank you for being here. Yeah, nice to meet you. I'm a
1: fan of your podcast, actually, so it's nice to be on the other side of it for a change.
0: All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you for tuning in for sure. Um, so let's 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 start. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what sparks bionics for everyone? Yeah, sure, it's a bit of a
1: combination of things. Um, As you can tell by these gray hair on my chin, I was getting a little bit older and I just uh, was getting a little bit bored of doing stuff to make money and I wanted to do something more meaningful. So um, that, that was uh, part of it. Um, I've always been a tech junkie. That was another part of it. And um, another factor is, you know, I get to witness because I'm, I'm Canadian, but I live in Thailand. So I'm back and forth quite a bit. Uh, I get to, to witness quite a dichotomy in the, um, the availability of prosthetics in uh, this region of the world. There are some countries here where it's, it's still quite primitive in terms of the prosthetics that are available uh, versus the, you know, sort of the, the, the availability of more advanced prosthetics in other areas. And um, so putting all those things together, I said, you know, I want to try and do something to spread awareness of, uh, of the devices that are available. And, uh, and that's what I set out to do. And uh, I didn't get into that very long before I realized there wasn't much for the end user in this industry. There's a lot of stuff from manufacturing, a lot of stuff from research scientists, but there was nobody sort of looking out for the, for the end user, the average person uh, who, who just wanted more information on their options.
0: And uh, that, that all of that combined to shape Bionics for Everyone. So, and and how many folks work with you on um, Bionics for Everyone? Uh, there's just two others.
1: Uh, we recently had a new CEO uh, join us because. Uh, my skill set is uh, limited in actually running things, uh, I like uh, researching and writing, um, and uh, also a director of operations, uh, so the CEO is Sam Morris and the director of operations is Dennis Morris, and of course we're all, we're all volunteers so uh, this is uh, not, not, not a full time gig for, for us.
0: Mm hmm. So let's talk into prosthesis and or lean prosthesis anyway for lower limb. Um, In your research that you published recently, um, we'll talk about the arms, hands and um, partial hand uh, bionic prosthesis. How many different products are out there on the market right now? So are we talking on lower limb? Uh, Upper limb. Oh, upper limb, upper
1: limb. Oh, it's exploding. Uh, You know, I I think uh, we have some that are in stage of research that haven't been published yet, but I think we're gonna end 2021 with about 15 bionic hands that are available um, in the U.S. market uh, or North American market. Uh, I think that there is another two complete arms uh, one the Luke arm and another one called uh, the Atom touch which will come out in 2022 those are complete arms and then there's a number of sort of modular parts including um, electric elbows so when you add them up um, you know we're probably going to be approaching uh, 25 by the time um, 20, 2021 comes to a close
0: right and just for people's I think what people sort of associate you know upper limb um, prosthesis are the bionic hands. Um, and you just mentioned about the el- electric elbow. So can you yes. share with us what um, bionics or what processes are available for different levels of amputation upper limb-wise?
1: Yeah, so there are, I mean, when you when you get to the, uh, so, so we'll start sort of uh, at the hand and go backwards. So I said, there's 15 hands available, uh, bionic hands that should be available by the end of 2021. Um, there are another five stream, uh, there's a, a whole range of uh, wrists, um, various wrists that, that are components and solutions. Uh, there are five mainstream electric elbows that we cover, but there are a number of other ones as well. And... Um, the reason that we don't cover them all is that uh, some of them are pure bionic um, elbows, but some of them are hybrids. So they're part mechanical and part bionic. Uh, and we, uh, we just try to stick with, the, in our, on our site, we try to stick mainly with the bionic uh, devices. Uh, as far as uh, if, if you have a shoulder disarticulation, articulation, um, in terms of mainstream, uh, there's really only two complete arms modular arms, as I mentioned, uh, one is the, the Luke arm and, uh, and, and one is um, uh, the Adam touch, which was formerly the, uh, formerly the uh, modular prosthetic limb. And both of those are, uh, are, are sort of children of, uh, of DARPA's uh, initiative for, for the military, for bionics. Um, so that's kind of I mean, what happens is uh, I, think, I think the industry is actually moving toward more of a modular type approach. A lot of the, a lot of the bionic hands are designed... Uh, as uh, sort of a modular design to participate in solutions that might combine uh, wrists and elbows from other manufacturers. I think that's where we're headed.
0: Right, now let's, um, I wanna just take a step back. Uh, you mentioned a few key technical words there that I think uh, we would get, um, or sometimes we don't hear in, in, you know, in, in the clinical terms uh, when a patient is, is looking at bionic hands. So you talked about a modular, a hybrid, can you get into those for us and what the differences yeah, sh- are, and what what should we be looking at?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, what what happens sometimes is that s- certain functions, like if you take the 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 elbow, um, it may like a true bionic elbow will have um, the ability to curl the arm uh, electronically. So you're using my signal to trigger a, a curl, and then it can curl up to say, uh, uh, you know, I think the highest one is close to five kilograms. Um, but there are other uh, features as well, like a lock to hold the elbow in place like electronic lock to hold it so that if you grab something in a certain, um, you know, sort of angle of the arm, and you want to hold it there, you can carry it that way. Now, when they, when they try to sort of hit the lower uh, end of the price market, what they'll do sometimes is they'll retain the, the electronic lock, uh, but they, they no longer have uh, the electronic uh, flex. On the elbow, so you you manually flex it. You you can either position the elbow correctly and then lock it, uh, or sometimes there's a pulley or some other device. Um, But the point is, it's not a completely bionic uh, device in that case. And and you know that really that hybrid applies as well. If you look at some of the bionic hands, they will have uh, electronically uh, rotating wrists. But in other cases, they will be manual. Uh, some of them will have an electronic, uh, like automatically positioning thumb. In other cases, they'll be manual where you move the thumb into the position that you want it. Um, and it's really a case of uh, people trying to hit a price point for the most part.
0: Hmm. Right. And, and, and I'd like to get into the price in a little bit. So let's, let's take sort of the technology from your technology per, uh, perspective um, in layman's terms. Um, we talked about we talked about the different parts, but let's let's talk uh, arm, hand, partial hand, elbows, and shoulders. Um, again, I think the most common thing that people look at when when they look at an prosthetic uh, prosthesis is the hand. Um yes. Can you take us through the technology that is behind um, the hand and and how does that work?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, the way I like to explain to people is, is kind of to start with the, the, the fingers and, and move backwards. So in a typical bionic hand, you'll have uh, one motor per finger, uh, and it's really only moving your, your main joint in the finger and uh, the other uh, joints, uh, sort of the middle, the end of the tip of your finger. etc. they're just kind of follow along joints. Uh, and this is explained I, on our complete guide for bionic arms and hands. There's, a, there's an explanation of, of, of how the hands work. So the first thing I like to say to people is, uh, you know, yeah, these hands can grasp uh, objects and they can form what we call grips or grip patterns. Um, so, you know, a typical one would be like a pinch where your you know, two fingers are together or, or you might have a power grab that you use to pick up like a briefcase or a shopping bag. And there's an assortment of these grip patterns. Um, but the, the truth is they, they can perform those and they resemble a human hand when they, when they move. Uh, but the fact is, uh, from a dexterity point point, they're a long way from the human hand. right I mean, you know, our hands, we can twist and turn our fingers, and we can take our thumb and we can you know, we can touch the areas of our palm and every portion of the underside of all fingers, et cetera. So the, the, the first thing to recognize about bionic hands is they, they really advance, They've got, um, you know, some superb solutions for, you know, having the hand function like a human hand in some ways, but there are limitations. Um, and uh, so the expectation is not that it'll duplicate a human, the, the behavior of a human hand or natural hand. The expectation is that it'll sort of knock off 90% of the things that you would do with a human hand. So that starts with the, the understanding of the sort of nature of the fingers. Uh, what happens is uh, these motors are controlled uh, by a control system which receives uh, commands like as in typically um, uh, if you have a, what's called a dual sight myoelectric hand, that just means there are two sensors on your arm. Uh, it'll be the, typically the commands are open and close uh, of the hand in whatever grip pattern you've, you've selected. Um, and the other feature on those types of hands is that you, you can rotate through the grip patterns and choose, choose the grip pattern most appropriate for the task you're trying to perform. So as we move up the arm uh, in the socket, uh, there are sensors that are placed in there. Uh, and again, the simplest system is this dual site myoelectric. And when you move your, your muscles in your forearm, uh, if we're talking about a blow the elbow, uh, situation, you move the muscles in the forearm, the remaining muscles in the forearm, they will trigger, uh, a electrical signal. Um, and this is picked up by myoelectric sensors. Uh, this, that, that uh, information is sent to the control, um, processor for the hand. And that is in in turn translated to a command that moves the hand. So that's basically how it works uh, for the below the elbow. Um, When we move further up the arm, it's the same. uh, Well, actually, sorry, before I I go there, there are alternatives. And I think we should get into some of those because the control system is the single most important factor in the quality of life that a person will have. And when I say that, I don't just mean the technology itself. I mean, the compatibility of the technology to the user. Because every residual limb is different. It's like a fingerprint, right? It's a, they're different shaped different sizes, the musculature is different, the skin conditions is different. Uh, and so what we're really trying to do is we're trying to make sure that we match uh, the best uh, you know, control system uh, in, in one of these devices to uh, the end user's residual limb for the, for the best uh, outcome. Um, so when we move up the arm, uh, of course, what happens is you're, you know, you know, as the amputation goes higher, if it's an amputation situation, if it goes higher, you're, you're losing more musculature uh, and you may be losing more real estate to place uh, sensors. Uh, so uh, the sensors, uh, you know, you can still control uh, an elbow and a wrist and a hand, but to do that, you typically need more sensors. So we start to get into, into pattern recognition systems. Um, which I'm, I'm glad to talk about uh, in a little while. Uh, and sometimes if the amputation is high enough, uh, then what happens is they have to take um, the, the nerves remaining in the arm and they, they have to do a surgery called uh, targeted muscle re And they actually rewire those nerves to muscles in the chest and the upper torso. And that's where they place the sensors. Uh, so what's happening there is your mind, uh, your mind, which retains a, 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 a a map of your body essentially uh when you when you think about moving uh what we call a phantom limb like a missing limb uh you're still sending the signals from your brain those signals are still going to the muscles and that's triggering a muscle movement which is detectable by these myoelectric sensors which become as i mentioned the commands so whether those muscles happen to be in your chest doesn't matter if your brain thinks that those are your arm muscles then it'll still cause that movement that movement will still be detected and you can still affect control over the bionic device, so that's basically how the system works.
0: So you could um, you mentioned earlier um, in in that that you can have a combination of electric. So I, I guess my question is, you can have a combination of an electric elbow and still a my electric hand with just the sensors being up on your chest, correct? Or because I've, I, I don't think I've personally seen a combination of an elbow and, and a hand. It's usually a, power, uh, a power, bo- a body powered elbow, or shoulder mm. elbow combination, and then um, a hand at the end. Um, what I've seen the below elbow with the arm obviously, and then so the myelectric electric, uh, is is on the forearm, and then but I've never seen an elbow myelectric hand, combination. So that works as well. Yeah, actually they're quite common. In fact, the elbow becomes the quarterback. So, so
1: these elbows, which are more expensive than you might think, like pretty much everything in this industry, um, the elbow has a control system. And so in that case, the, the, the myoelectric signals and and houses the batteries and stuff to power everything as well. Uh, So the sensors are say in the upper arm, uh, we'll say, and, and uh, the signals from the sensors are sent to the electric elbow. And then they are passed through to the hand, You know when it's appropriate so uh what i mean by when it's appropriate is um there may be a switch signal that the user uses to switch between uh control of the elbow versus control of the wrist versus control of the hand uh so in other words you would switch you would you would do like a co-contraction typically i said you have two sensors you're controlling two muscles um if you're typically trying to move one to say open the hand or maybe uh curl the arm or, or rotate the wrist and another one to do the opposite Um, but in order to switch between the devices, you would have a co-contraction means you hold both muscles, you clench both muscles at the same time. And that signal could be used, for example, to switch between the devices you're trying to control. Now, obviously the more devices you get, when when you can only really generate three types of signals, the more devices you get, the more awkward this becomes. Uh, and so, you know, this is probably a good place to introduce uh, pattern recognition. So, uh, what happens with pattern recognition is that instead of using, uh, you know, two sensors, they use up to eight. Uh, and it's really eight sensor sites. Uh, each one has two sensors and uh, they're using artificial intelligence. So what happens is the system sort of similar, it picks up the the, the, the muscle movements, the, sig- the electrical signals generated by the muscle movements, send them to a control system, which figures out what the person is trying to do and then s- sends the commands to the various components in the solution. But in this case, artificial intelligence is used and it's a, it's a, it's a superior approach in general. Uh, in that, instead of trying to explicitly control a muscle to do something, all you do is think, I want to move my, my phantom hand. Uh, I want to open it. That will cause you to move certain muscles just naturally. Uh, the, the sensors pick up all of those muscle movements. And uh, to say open a hand versus turning a wrist might be quite a, quite a bit of a different pattern. And so the, they pick up these patterns and they're using artificial intelligence to sort out you know which pattern is really the one they want to pay attention to or handling variations, and then they control it. So under that scenario, you don't have this conscious switching uh, between devices. You simply have, I'm thinking about moving my hand, that's going to generate one pattern. I'm thinking about moving my wrist, that's going to generate a separate pattern. Or I'm thinking about moving my elbow, and that's going to generate a different pattern. And the AI takes care of it all for you and just sends the commands down. Um, so in that case, uh, in all those cases, if you have an elbow, the elbow is generally speaking the quarterback of all of that
0: wheels turning in my head. So okay. you just, you just said something to me that I was in wondering the whole time you were talking again, I've seen many of just the lower limb with the myoelectric hand. Yes. Um, and then I see them take off their wrists, right? Yes. So could you have an, so there is a computer piece as well, if you, in layman's terms, that could control a wrist twist, even on yes. a, just below elbow amputees? Yes. Yes. Definitely the electronically rotating wrist, which is
1: quite which is quite convenient for some things. I mean, I've I've right. seen uh, I, cases where uh, you know I've seen videos where the the person sticks their key in the in the door lock. Uh, and they just rotate their wrist to open the door. It's kind of cool, you know. And uh, um, so yes, there, there is all of that. One of the reasons I think you're not seeing these devices uh, is the expense of them, you
0: mm-hmm. know,
1: because you you know that the hands, unfortunately, until recently, the hands have been quite expensive. Uh, the the ones that are less expensive tend not to be modular hands. Let me explain that. Uh, so the least expensive hand on the market right now is the uh, Unlimited Tomorrow's True Limb, and it sells for about eight thousand. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about that because it's quite a revolutionary model, $8,000 US. But this hand uh, comes with a complete uh, socket. It's a complete unit. So the control system, the socket, everything is in there. Uh, And uh, it's manufactured that way, uh, you know, buy unlimited tomorrow and sent to you, shipped to you. And and we can talk about their process because again, I think it's important for the future. Um, And uh, there's another arm that's similar to this is a very popular arm called the Hero Arm from Open Bionics. Again, it's one unit. Right, uh, and uh, so it's, that's the way it's delivered. But the until recently, the modular hands tended to be quite a bit more expensive. So the hands that were designed to work with you know any combination of components, uh, and uh, uh, some of those prices have started to come down down now. But uh, you know before we're talking might be forty thousand, fifty thousand dollars in many cases. That's just the hand. You've got a wrist component. Uh, the elbows, the the truly bionics electronic elbows, uh, can be quite expensive. Uh, I'm hesitant to give you a price on these because um, uh, we don't have good enough information yet uh, on them. And, and I, I think we should talk about pricing a bit too, if we have time, Yeah, um, of course. but, but uh, the point is, so you add all, all of these components uh, and if you throw pattern recognition is quite expensive compared to the, the dual site myoelectric. If you add all this stuff up together, I mean, it gets pretty pricey. You know, we're talking a hundred thousand dollars for that kind of solution. Um, and as a result, of course, uh, you know, the only people who can really afford that are, are veterans, if they're covered by the Department of Defense, um, workmen's compensation, uh, or accident insurance. Uh, for the rest of the people out there, as you know, there are a lot of fundraisers going on. Uh, these are not being covered by government programs, and um, uh, w- which I believe they should be. Uh, and uh, instead, people have to raise money. And so you're not seeing people buy the this, this sort of Cadillac solution.
0: Right, so before we get into cost, and I do wanna talk about the costs, um, what are some of the things, in your opinion, um, are common with, with a lot of these hands and a lot of the elbows? I, I think you said there's there's only a small amount of elbows in the market. Um, and we didn't even get to the shoulder part, so maybe talk about you know the difference uh, in shoulders as well. And also, um, just make a distinction between, I think I said earlier that it's a microprocessor hand, and um, it technically is a myoelectric. is a terminology, correct?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, you're you're not wrong because I mean, in the inside there is a microprocessor doing the you know the, the, the computations. Um, but the the myoelectric really refers more to the sensors. So myoelectric is the detection of of uh, the uh, electrical signal generated by muscles when they move. Uh, right. And so my sensors, but really they're, you know, why I like the term bionic is because it's all encompassing of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so you've got a microprocessor and you've got the electronic components and, and the, the myoelectric part is really just the detection of the, uh, the electrical signals that trigger
0: everything. Right. And so, yeah, so going back to my other question then is what, I guess maybe it's a two-parter, what is common in, a, across all of them, um, you know, hands, hands, um, and we can, you can speak brand if you want to, um, elbows and any kind of shoulder, um, prosthesis.
1: Well, so, so we really have to separate all of those. Um yeah. the, the shoulder, the shoulder one is, um, is, is, is very tricky. And I, am going to get back to that in a minute, but, um, the, the co- most common thing, uh, is the design of the hands themselves. So, so the basic system of sending you know, these control signals, the basic notion of open and close um, as, as the primary uh, uh, function of the hand. Now, keep in mind, I mean, you're talking about, we talked earlier about grip patterns. What that means is on one grip pattern, certain fingers will, will close, the thumb will be, do something. On Another grip pattern, other fingers may close. And so you get these different patterns, why we call them grip patterns. Um, and the, the, uh, the act of open and closing there means something different for every pattern. And uh, so, but, but basically the notion of opening and closing uh, is common to all of them. The notion of selecting a grip, right? Because some of these things like the, the ILIM, I think it's the ultra or the quantum I can never remember which one is the, the, the highest one. I think it's the quantum uh, it has up to 36 grip patterns, uh, which sounds like a tremendous number of grip patterns. And it is because research shows that the majority of people only use two or three grip patterns. In fact, they use one grip pattern about 75% of the time. Now this is uh, in part a byproduct of some of the failures of bionic hands, which I, you know, again we can we can talk about. So, but the common uh, thing is the, the way the hands move. Um, there there are a couple of exceptions uh, to this that are that are coming out, um, but generally speaking, uh, the mechanics I described in the beginning, the motor uh, driving the primary joint, joint with the other joints being you know pull along. Uh, is, is common to all of them. The use of the signals in the command system is common to all of them. What really changes between them, um, and sorry, so there's another thing that's common, and it's not so good, is, and this historical problem is they've been fragile. These hands have mm-hmm. been fragile and breakage is you know incredibly inconvenient for people and frustrating. Um, and there's, a, there's, a, there's an option to deal with this. And I, again, we're putting a lot of stuff off, but I mean, you know, we need to discuss that a little bit, but that's also common. What's different is the uh, quality of the control system. So, you know, you, if you look online, uh, like at the Michelangelo ham, which I think until now, and there's a couple of competitors now, but it's really the most sophisticated buying a in the market. It's been around for a long time. It's very expensive. You know, we're talking $70,000, I think, or uh, $60,000, 70000 uh, But it it's, has quite fluid movements. It's all integrated in the control system, the wrist moves. And if you're watching somebody do something like meal preparation um, with a hand that is, uh, you know, less sophisticated, what you'll see is a lot of elbow and sh- awkward elbow and shoulder movement trying to get the hand to position itself. And with a very sophisticated hand like the Michelangelo, you'll see a lot less of that. You'll see a lot more sort of natural movement. So there is a real difference in, in the quality of the control systems as you go through the spectrum of bionic hands. Um, and I would say to you also that uh, this, this uh, evolution that we're going through, which I think is, a, is an evolution from the dual site myoelectric to the pattern recognition systems um, is going to close that gap because some of that sophistication is going to be available to, to hands that are less expensive. Um,
0: but I think those are probably the most common things. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and differences. And, yeah, and you wanted, uh, I wanted to touch on what you, what you said in, in this segment about um, the limitations or, or challenges uh, with some of these hands. Um, could you name some of those and, and sort of things we need to kind of watch out for when we're talking about hand technology or upper limb technology?
1: yeah well let me start off with with kind of the the generic problem that is shared by almost all of these and you know it's with a hand like michelangelo for example i said quite sophisticated this isn't as big a problem but it's still a big problem and this is that when we use our hands you think about just the act of say uh, you're walking down the hallway and you go to grab the house key with your hands or your hand and then you go to open the door or lock to unlock the door or something uh when you do that uh, you glance at the at the house key on the on say the table in the hallway, then you move your eyes toward the door even before you pick it up because your your hand you know where your hand is in space relative to your body your you, your your brain's created a three D map of the hallway, and you just grab that that key and you don't really care how you grab it you're not trying to pick the key up as if you're you know ready to open the door because you can rely on sensory feedback. The incredible sensory feedback of our hands again that that sort of spatial knowledge of where all your fingers are relative to your body your hand etc and you just automatically without thinking about it you just manipulate that key into the right position in order to open the door okay. well none of the hands have that degree of sophistication uh, primarily because they're lacking uh, two ingredients they're lacking what's called proprioception which is which is awareness of where your limb is in space and its movement through space and they're lacking sensory feedback and uh, as a result uh, you have to visually guide uh, all of the hands uh yeah, or movements and that can be quite tiring you know and and uh, can be a little awkward because control systems aren't aren't as good as your and natural hands so doing something that requires fine motor skills can be can be quite a quite frustrating so this this limitation is is uh is common to almost all of the hands a couple coming down the pipeline that, are, that are, may change this but that's that's probably the biggest single generic problem with bionic hands so and as a result a consequence of this by the way is that uh they've they've done studies now where they've they put sensors on a person who's who's a unilateral amputee or a unilateral limb, limb difference so they have one bionic hand and one natural hand, they put sensors on them and they send them home and they, they, they monitor how they're being used. And the fact is, is that people are still using their natural hand for an exceedingly high percentage of the things that they're doing. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, the bionic hand is useful but they just haven't graduated to the point where there is anywhere near as useful as a natural hand. So that's one of the major limitations. Um, in, in terms of the other, we've talked about fragility. So there are a couple of hands that now are water and dust proof. So we're starting to see that, which which means that they're less fragile in that sense. The Task is one. The Vincent Evolution is another. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the the Adam Touch is coming out. They're all waterproof. You can submerge them in water. Uh, they're dust proof. Uh, so they're quite a bit quite a bit more rugged that way. Um, there's been a lot of attention. Uh, paid to robustness. So we're starting to see now, uh, you know, uh, stainless steel and titanium fingers and a lot more uh, attention uh, to, to the way that things are are um, uh, designed uh, to make them uh, less fragile. There, there are also two mechanical uh, partial hands, one from point designs and another one from naked prosthetics. And these things are quite innovative. So what they're doing is, and they're, and they're not as concerned with making the, 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 the partial portion of the hand look like a hand. They're quite mechanical in nature, by the way, but, but uh, they're, they're ingeniously designed uh, for uh, embracing the, re- the residual of the hand uh, and allowing a sufficient grip strength. Um, they tend to be incredibly durable uh, and so what we did is we, we did, we made a rare exception because we, you know, we're a bionic site, we cover bionic devices. But in this case, um, because these two uh, mechanical uh, partial hand protheses were so innovative, uh, and so well received, we decided to cover those on our site as well.
0: Now, um, in your opinion, from, again, from a technology perspective, what makes one stand out from the rest? Uh, we've talked about, you know, uh, I believe we mentioned that you mentioned the co-op one or the OSER ones. And and those are the most common ones, I think, that is out there that you see when you go to a conference for amputees. You see, you know, uh, the co-op ones, the the OSER ones or the, um, the Autobach ones. Yeah. And um, so, what do you think makes those come on top? And then, what are the ones that you think are underrated that should be on top?
1: Well, so we tend we try not to to sort of pass a judgment on the hands. I mean, we we have our sort of internal opinion on what we do instead. We have these user satisfaction surveys. That we run because we want to get the end users who are the real experts to tell us what their experiences are, and then uh, this is fairly early in this process, so we haven't collected enough uh, responses for many of the bionic hands to sort of state anything publicly. What I will say to you is that you know traditionally you had the the Osir Island, uh, you had the Michelangelo, you had the Bionic, and these were the hands that kind of ruled the roost for a long time. But in the last few years, there have been some really worthy competitors to come along, uh, the Tasca. Hand from Tasker Prosthetics is quite an impressive hand. Um, and it's from a price range standpoint, it's down sort of closer to the Bionic, not as expensive as the ILM, not as expensive as the Michelangelo. And I think it gives them a, a pretty close run for the money, uh, to be honest. Functionally, uh, on top of which, as I said before, I mean it's waterproof, it's dustproof, uh, and and those hands are not. You have to put gloves in those hands. Uh, so uh, and it's and it's made to be kind of extra durable. Um, and then in, in addition to that, we've had um, a couple of other competitors come on, like Vincent Solutions. Or not sorry, sorry uh, uh, Aether Biomedical. I always get them wrong. The Zeus hand, um, they've had a rollout. They're from either the Ukraine or Poland. A number of companies from that area, so it's, it's one of those. Um, and they they appear to be an exceptionally good hand. They're a modular hand, uh, so you see solutions. They're da- they're down in the price range. They're sort of uh, more like uh, thirteen thousand to seventeen thousand. I think they're in our price category called ten to twenty five thousand. Um, so they're they're less expensive, but they seem to be highly highly functional. Um, there's, a, there's a hand called the Psionic Ability Hand, which doesn't have as much marketing exposure. It's a little bit earlier in the process. It's quite a good hand. Um, a, a new one coming out uh, or has come out, Covey Nexus Hand. Uh, again, we're talking probably around the $25,000 price range. When I give you these prices, by the way, I'm talking about uh, the, the price for a typical below the elbow solution, including the, the, the socket like the prosthesis fees. Uh, we, we try to do that because with, with companies making the whole system, like Open Op- Bionics and, and the TruLim, the only way to put these on level playing field is say, okay, what's, what's the cost of a typical solution to the end user? Um, so There are a number of these hands that are coming out, and, and more to come, I have to tell you, that, that are really worthy competitors. Um, they're, they're tending to embrace pattern recognition, uh, which I think is, you know like I said, mentioned, quite an advancement over the dual site. Um, uh, they tend to embrace better durability for the hands, which, which is a major factor. Oh, and, and, you know, there's another uh, thing that they're doing. uh, It reminds me of a a point. I forgot to mention uh, previously, another general problem with the hands is is switching grips. So traditionally what happened would be if say you had 14 possible grip patterns in your hand, um, you would have to uh, rotate, uh, through these grip patterns to find the right one well that can be quite slow and cumbersome so you can imagine you're sitting there you want to perform a task like you want to pick up a pen from your desk so you want the pinch grip and then you have to use a co-contraction and rotate through say six grips to get the pinch grip and then you need to 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 uh a, a trigger the muscle to do the uh, open and close to pick up the pen well that's quite frustrating um given that people only use a few uh Uh, grips in the course of a day companies have come up with all sorts of innovative ways now to allow you to select them really, really quickly. Um, They have everything from grip chips. Like if you're near a computer board, there's a little, there's a little RFID chip and it'll, it'll talk to the hand and automatically switch the hand into the grip you need for your computer. Um, There's little pressure sensors on the end of fingers. You just press it and it equates to a grip. Uh, So these things have taken away a lot of this uh, are starting to take away a lot of this
0: uh, awkwardness and uh, frustration with, with, with changing grips. Um, Oh, I was going to ask, um, I think there's conversations as well about the thermal um, fingertips uh, so that you can use a smartphone or any kind of touch systems. Yes, we're um, starting to see those as well. I was going to say, you know, how is that coming along and, and is that coming along as in it's almost part of you don't have to. I think in the past I've heard that where you had to buy a specific glove to go over the finger or go over the hand in order for you to use touch uh, sensors on your on your iPad or on your tablet or on your phone. Is that still the case or or are there things that sort of incorporated in fingers now in my electric uh, hands that that is you know that's just part of the basics of it now. Yeah, they're being integrated now. So the newer hand's coming out. I'm pretty sure
1: I'm going by memory here. I can find the Kobe Nexus is one. There's another one that we're, we're about to uh, release an article on. Um, uh, we haven't finished it quite yet. We're waiting for feedback from the manufacturer. It has one of these, uh, uh, I, think, I think either all of its fingers or one of its fingers is set up that way. So we're starting to see this. And, and to be honest with you, I think we're going to start to see a lot more electronics integrated into the hands. So, uh, for example, one of the complaints: um, s- say that you're, uh, you- you're you're a double amputee uh, and you've got two bionic hands, uh, and you want to get your credit card out of your wallet, your you know, in your purse or something, this is quite, this is quite difficult because it requires fine motor movement. So uh, the idea of embedding a chip where you could just have a pay, pay chip right in the actual hand, um, you know, there are some, some uh, crazy ideas floating around there, but when I say crazy, I mean, in a good way, uh, we're talking about being able to play music. Um, you know, we're talking about uh, integrating other electronics, like uh, uh, you know, sort of almost your, your, uh, and I, in fact, I did see one integrated, I think it was on a partial hand solution, uh, which was like an iWatch. Mm -hmm. that uh, had been integrated. So I think you're going to see all of this happening because why not, right? I mean, you've got the device there and, um, you know, I mean, its primary uh, purpose, of course, is to restore as much mobility as you can to the person. Uh, But if you can add a bunch of bells and whistles that are very convenient,
0: why not? No, I mean, absolutely. You know, um, I don't even carry a wallet these days. Everything is on my phone, you know, or on my watch, right? Mm -hmm. And and it's still, and it's so funny that I still go to a grocery store or wherever, and i extend my wrist and it pays and it's like new technology still for a lot of people and they go yes. what did you just do and i said i just paid for that and and you know and um and it's like it. it it's funny that with the pop you know with the popularity of, of of the smartwatches, that people still don't see a whole lot of them um out on the market so it'll be really yes. interesting to see Population density wise, I also, you know, I think it, I, and you can, and you can tell me different, that hand and upper limb is still a smaller population than uh, the uh, baloney amputee, or sorry, um, below waist amputee, if you will, um, or yeah. lower limb amputees. So I think it's, you know, we could really focus, I think, on technology and honing in that technology because there's a lot of uses for hands, right? Oh yes. Um, and, and you know and especially if you've lost your dominant hand where it's yes. your writing one it's your it's your everyday thing that you would not think about and and you know it's your dominant hand that would do that so I think the more focus on technology and the more focus on on how we improve those hands would be better I know some of the complaints that I've heard was how easy the fingers snap off for example on a on yes. my electric hand Yes. Um, And we've talked cost about that. What are the repair costs, if any, or once they break off, I don't think the hand is useless because I've heard and I've seen fingers replaced on those hands. But what is, you know, other than the initial cost of your actual prosthesis, what are the repair costs or some of the repair costs that you would see in that in the life cycle of that hand?
1: It, there are a couple of comments about that. It depends. I mean, if it's under warranty coverage, there is no cost. It's covered. If it's a defect, you know, because of the, of the way the hand was uh, was built or in the part. Um, so I've heard, I don't have specific costs, but I've heard that if you're paying out of pocket, that in general, repairs to bionic hands can be quite expensive, as can the parts be. Now, again, this is a changing landscape. You, you know, what happens is that when I, when I talk about 15 competitors now in this space, and some of them, like Unlimited Tomorrow, going direct to consumer, bypassing the clinical distribution system, uh, you're starting to see real competition. So, uh, like the Covey Nexus hand, I believe is uh, is one I'm fairly high on. They were they were the designers of the Bionic, and they they, they when Bionic or bought out. I think it was uh, uh, when Autobach bought the uh, Bionic from I think it was Steeper um, you know, a bunch of the designers got together and formed this company called Kobe to build Nexus. Um, so, you know, they, they know that these are sort of the sore points uh, fragility. So they have, they, what they do is they have the hands, the fingers will automatically release. So instead of snapping off, they'll just release. And then the, if you, if you power the hand off or press the button, they'll all sort of reconnect. So you're seeing that kind of thing. You're seeing flex, uh, in the fingers to avoid breakage. Um, and you're seeing, um, you know, components that were historically incredibly expensive. Like, for example, the rubber pads and the end of the fingers, you know, if they wore out might be hundreds of dollars and you, and, you know, you're thinking, why are they that expensive? And there are some people now, uh, some companies now trying to tackle this, trying to reduce those costs. Um, so I, you know, I think uh, when you're, when we're having these discussions, a lot of the times, you know, when we talk about fragility, and, and B-Bionic is a classic example, by the way, it had terrible, uh, durability problems up until version two. And what I know from a user satisfaction survey that, that, uh, users of Bionic 3 are much happier. Why are they much happier? Because the company's got the feedback. They, they went back to the design shop and they said, how can we make these things more durable and they're improving? Uh, so my answer to people is either they're still fragile. They should still be treated as a relatively fragile. They
0: are improving though. And, uh, um, I don't know if that completely answers your question but yeah no that's that's really good um the other one that i wanted to and and this just popped in my head as we were talking about the fingers um and and limitations on that i've seen uh from the wrist technology the the 360 movement of the wrist around your hand and we talked about that about twisting keys and and turning the the door handle or the door keys uh and, and opening handles have you ever seen a dorsey Flex on wrist technology. Yeah, not not electrically powered. Uh, oh, so you still log- have to uh, manually move. Yeah, they tend they
1: tend they tend to have locked positions uh, for most of them. So what happens is, uh, uh, you know, it might be fifteen or eighteen degrees or whatever. the either direction. It's quite convenient because you can just unlock it, move it, lock it, and then you know your hands in a in a preferred position. And combined with the wrist rotation, it's quite convenient. I'm trying to think if there's one that has powered dorsiflexion. You know, if I had to guess. I would say I need to look at the Atom Touch because the Atom Touch is unquestionably the most advanced, by far, the most advanced bionic arm slash hand that we've ever seen. And uh, we, we can talk briefly about that. Um, but I wanted to uh, jump back just a little bit uh, about the durability issue. Mm-hmm. If you go online and we, we watch, you know, uh, scores or hundreds of videos of people using uh, bionic limbs, and by far, the ones who are most satisfied are the ones that have have uh, come to accept that you actually need multiple devices. So you'll, for example, you'll see the what we call the multi-articulated bionic hand, which is the one that looks like a human hand and the fingers can all move and stuff. Those tend to be used for relatively late duties um and, and and the people who are happiest with them because of the fragility issue uh, now as i said the task is a little bit different it's, it's a little bit more rugged you can use it outside with your hedge trimmer and you know cutting the lawn and all that other stuff and it'll, it'll withstand that but for the most of them um you you want to you want to want kind of light indoor duties and then they have a couple of other what we call alternative terminal devices and these can be uh, things like the powered hook, like the axon hook, I think, from, from Autobach. And there's another one, which i never never sure if I'm pronouncing it right, whether it's the grifer or the griffer, or, but it's the one where it's a clamp, it's a powered clamp. And these things are super rugged, right? And so what you see is that the really experienced users of Bionics Hands, the ones who have their own YouTube channels, make a lot of videos, they have multiple devices, multiple terminal devices. And rather than go through the frustration of breaking a hand by using it for the wrong purpose, they just, they have those quick disconnect wrists. They can pop off the multi-articulated hand and put on the the, the, the gripper or the, or the, the powered hook in like a few seconds. And then they just do their thing. And, and then when they were heavy, finished with a heavy duty task, they switch back to the multi-articulated hand. And I think that's kind of the path to, um, to, to sort of use your happiness on the durability question
0: until we find a way to make these things indestructible. Right. No, um, I agree on that. Um, When I first started as well as a double baloney amputee, um, I don't have any um, microprocessor ankles or microprocessor feet. And we'll get into that in the next uh, iteration of this episode. But um, yeah, now that I'm four years in on my amputation, I have different feet for different things that I'm going to be doing. Yeah. Because the the feet that I use for every day is not or cannot get into the water. Although there are hybrids now, if you will, that I could use that foot for water also. And then I have this foot that is all around sports foot that is can get in water, can get in the sand, can get on the beach. And that's the one that's key. And it's important for me because that's what I do all day. You know, I'm, I'm a very rugged outdoorsy sporty guy. And then of course, that I'm an athlete as well, I have my running blades that that is meant for yes. running because it's much more comfortable to run with, run with than your regular everyday foot. It's lighter. It's not as heavy. So I don't spend as much energy on. So again, just learning what I needed to do. I switched feet depending on what activity I'm going to be doing. It's just so that yeah. one, I don't damage what, like I'm not going to use my running blade for everyday walking around. One, it's not comfortable. Uh, yes. Two, I'm risking falling the whole time. And three, I would probably break it if I use it for that kind of work. Whereas yep. my everyday foot, I can pivot around anything, walk on uneven ground and it will not affect the way my, my walking is long-term because it's adjusting to what I'm working with. So I think that's that's a key thing to, uh, to understand is that you don't have to buy one and it be all Um, However, I do think, to your point, and hopefully, that we are moving into something like that. I think, again, co opt is the last um, uh, my electric hand that I looked at um, from two years or that I saw from two years ago. And the demo was the guy showing us the demo was he was putting his co opt hand in water and actually in hot water. And I don't know if there's any truth to any of that. I, I, I have both hands, so I, I don't know. But, um, you know, it, it's encased in rubber. So I guess water doesn't affect it at all.
1: Yeah, well, uh, like I said, the, the, there are a couple of hand specific designed to be waterproof. Uh, and as you know, and on the uh, on the lower limb side, which we're going to get into like the Janium X3 is waterproof, you go swim in the ocean with it. I mean, so so we're headed toward that. But I still think there'd be there be a need for multiple devices, you know, and, and this is there is one point I want to touch on here is, and it pertains to Canada and the, and the healthcare plans is, you know, there has to be a recognition of this, right? Like we, we when when uh, somebody has a limb difference, we want to them to be able to participate fully in society. Uh, to, in order to do that they're going to need multiple devices right and so you know as far as the government the way they budget these things they have to accept that I mean it's, it's kind of like if you want to be if you want to be genuine about this and say we're going to fully embrace anybody with a limb difference to help them participate fully in our society you know the average the average person with a limb difference the average amputee is going to require oh, five devices six devices, seven devices that should be in the budget right? Otherwise, otherwise, what are we doing? We're forcing people to use the wrong device for the wrong purpose. And it could, in the case of lower limb uh, amputees, especially could lead to falling and injury if they don't have the right device. So, so we really need to do a sort of societal mind shift on, on this uh, and sort of align the policies with the reality. And the reality is that every single person with a limb difference probably needs, you know, five, six devices.
0: Right. No, I think, I think my listeners are, are tired of me uh, preaching to the choir about um, even just in Ontario alone about needing to change the the cost guidelines for prosthesis. I I truly believe that if we set people up for success in this journey, that you will have less of a visit, I guess, and use of medical care, medical care. Um, I think you know, in my experience and and my my story, and my journey is unique to me, but. The, the 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 180 of my life um just being set up for success being set up to be active being set up to participate socially with my friends and my family and the world and 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 contribute to society by working a full-time job yeah you know consuming and earning and consuming um is 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 i think much better for everybody government cost whatever you want you know however you want to position society that, to society everything. than just me sitting at home then accumulating anything else that would be um resulting of not being mobile health yeah other health disease you know or uh, other health issues mental health issues that you know um that will then eat further costs in in our healthcare. Yeah, I mean, when we
1: get into the, the this especially uh, pertains
0: to lower limb uh,
1: uh, bionics uh, and uh, uh, lower limb differences, the which we'll get into in that session because because there are a lot of you know secondary and tertiary injuries that occur from from not having you know a, a sort of healthy gait, a balanced gait, uh, and in some cases that requires bionic devices, and the governments need to be able to pay for that. And I think when we're talking about the upper limbs, so probably the biggest factor uh, I see. Um, is that, you know, th- there's a psychological and emotional component, uh, especially in children uh, who have an upper limb difference. Uh, and I, to be honest with you, if you look at all the scientific studies of the functional difference, say, between a body powered device and a bionic device, until recently, uh, you know, there wouldn't be that much functional difference between them, but there's a huge psychological difference. I mean, one of the things that that, that uh, Hero Arms did uh, from Open Bionics was they brought in these cool robotic designs with covers that are like Iron Man and Frozen, and all this. And and what happened is the kids went from you know you know it's like, like when you're a kid. I mean, if you have a pimple on your face, you're self conscious about it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, well, historically. Uh, you know, for hundreds and thousands of years, you had a child who, who was, say, an upper limb amputee or had an upper limb uh, limb difference. In many cases, they're trying to hide it. They feel self-conscious about it. You know, even if everybody around them is doing, doing the right thing and they're, they're inclusive and all that stuff, there's still that, that, that sort of, you know, self-consciousness about it. And uh, so uh, what Open Bionics did is said, uh, forget that. We're not going to make a, you know, a device that that uh, tries to look like a normal hand or a natural hand. We're going to make something that's cool and robotic and, and uh, allows you to stand out in a very positive way. And this was embraced like completely by children. I mean, it's, it's turned the entire world upside down. You've got kids now who have both natural hands who are asking if they can get a bionic arm. Well, you can imagine what that does for the psychology and the emotional state of the child in that classroom. They're no longer an outsider to, to, that, to that social environment. They're like right in there. They're part of it. They're, they're, they're celebrated for, for their difference instead of feeling self-conscious about it. And so, you know, the, the issue from a funding standpoint, my feeling uh, and I'd love to see a scientific study on this because I'd like, I'd like to be able to put it in the face of, of um, you know, uh, uh, provincial healthcare plans, is that the there is a functional benefit to these uh, bionic hands, but there's an emotional psychological component which far outweighs that functional benefit. And that needs to be taken into account because it's life-changing. And I, I could show you, you know, scores of videos that'll make you cry of how happy the child is to get their bionic arm put it on and, and just be thrilled about it. It's like, um, uh, it's like 10 Christmases rolled into one. So uh, this is a factor um, that we have to take into account with, uh, uh, because, you know, you shake people's hands and stuff. It's very, it's a very prominent thing, right? As you know, some lower limb amputees below the, below the knee walk so well that if they've got pants on, you can't tell that they're amputees. But you can't, you know, if, if you're an upper limb amputee, I mean, it's, it's front and center in, in your interactions with people. And so I feel we need to give them the devices for that reason as well.
0: No, I, I absolutely agree uh, 100% on that. Um, and, and to your point, there are challenges um, everywhere, really, um, for both uh, upper limb and lower limb uh, amputees when it comes to funding and, and the way it's it's schemed if you will if you will. Um and the and the way it, it works out for the government is I don't know, it's still beyond me now still I'm and I'm, I'm still trying to grasp all of that. Well the problem I have is is you know is is
1: I don't have limb difference and I'm come to this situation as an outsider and I find it disingenuine. Okay, because the genuine thing to do would be say, look, we've got these incredibly talented people, and I've met some enormously talented people. You're yourself with these podcasts, and I've met, you know, there's a there's a lady who uh, I won't, won't mention her name, but she she uh, uh, she's uh, in a wheelchair, uh, and she has a guide dog, and she's online, and she's educated me more about life in a wheelchair uh, and some of the challenges that they're facing and in, in, in access inclusivity, uh, just a number of other things, uh, an enormously valuable contribution. Okay. And a very talented, very funny person. Uh, And we see this all over. Uh, So if, if we're going to be genuine about it, when somebody has an, has an accident or a disease, or it's a congenital condition, we really want to say, look, we want you to be a hundred percent part of our society. And so we know that you need the following, you know, like I said, multiple devices, we know that you need assistance in other ways. Uh, And let's do that. And let's, let's be genuine about it. And then, and then bring all of those people fully into our society, in the workplace, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and society is going to be way better off. I mean, way better off. Um, so I'm uh, I'm very passionate about this. I, I know there's a lot of other people are passionate about it as well. And uh, I, I hope we see some changes in that area. Meanwhile, on price, I want to say to you that that the private industry is acting. I think it was slow in the beginning because we had some big companies. And in fairness to these companies, you know, the with, without government funding support, uh, sales volumes are low. And so when they're low and they're complex devices and they have to keep scientists and engineers around, it's kind of, they have to make a lot of money on on devices because the, the volume is so low. Otherwise, how are they going to pay for all the R&D and et cetera? So, but what's happened on on the upper limb side is that now we're starting to see companies really press uh the the larger competitors and we're getting price competition so if i could walk through those quickly uh the one i wanted to talk to you about which i think is is potentially groundbreaking uh is uh the true limb from unlimited tomorrow so here's what they do they if you want one of their uh limbs, so they're just below the elbow solutions if you want one of their devices uh they will send you you to contact them they will send you a scanner Now, I don't know if you ever played the old Xbox, which had, uh, I forget the name of it now, but it's a scanner. It scans like a thousand points in your body. It was an incredible device. They have a modified device like that. And so you take the scanner out and you scan your residual limb and then you send that scan back to the company. And the company creates a couple of test sockets just for fitting. They send them to you and you go back, you might go back and forth a few times to get the fit right. But after that, they construct the entire arm for you. They send that arm to you. You put the arm on, they have software, and you train the arm. So you you know, you know learn how to move the, the arm, and you've got a training program. And um, uh, so they've got this complete kind of remote system, and it bypasses the, the clinical distribution system. So people are not going to the prosthetist to do this. Uh, there are, there are prosth- prosth- prosthetists involved at the head office of this company, that that expertise skill, but they're not present for the individual patient. Now, I don't want to suggest for even a moment that prosthetists aren't valuable, because uh, they are. A good prosthesis is invaluable. But for this uh, limited uh, use of this technology, for this, for the spionic device, the blow-the-elbow device, this seems to be working. Now, when I say seems... Uh, I I uh, want to wait till we get uh, till, till they're in the market long enough because it's been around for about a year now. Uh, well, they've been around a lot longer than that, but they've just been selling uh, commercially for about a year. I want to wait till we get our user satisfaction surveys back and people confirm to me that the hand is working as well as um, as it is claimed. But what's happened is this price is is eight thousand dollars U.S. Now, they actually allow you to buy it on a payment plan of 270 bucks a month or some, something. So this is the first time that we've ever seen a bionic device that is that affordable. And if you think about a device that has a, a period, I think, of uh, about a lifespan of about five years, you know, so we're talking 60 months. Now, suddenly, you're talking about a device that's $130 or 140 or however the math works out, uh, dollars a month. Which is, you know, probably the average statistical difference in earning power between having one hand and two hands mm-hmm. probably exceeds that. So we're just entering that era where where it's conceivable that these devices are not going to be uh, so super expensive. Now, will that work? I don't know. It's going to shake up the industry. Uh, if it proves to be effective, it'll it'll dramatically shape up the industry. If they have problems with it and they have to iron them out for a while, maybe that maybe the effect will be delayed. But uh, even uh, without that device, we have seen devices now come down. Uh, the, the, the Hero Arm, uh, they fall in our ten dollars to $25,000 category, but they're I think they're about $17,000, ter- total final price to the, to the end user. Um, we've got other ones that are in that range. Uh, we've got new ones coming out now that are in their 20s, so up to, say, 25000 And this is what you're going to see happening. I mean, and these things, you know, traditionally, these things were, were, uh, you know, quite a bit uh, less sophisticated than the more expensive ones. But with uh, the advent now of, of pattern recognition systems that are also, when I say modular, they can participate in modular systems. So they're generic, they're not specific to any one device. Now that you're getting that, uh, you can see the future is that these devices are gonna get a lot more sophisticated. They'll be using pattern recognition like the very expensive ones, uh, they're modular. And, uh, and of course, the, the, the quality of their hand movement success, stuff is getting better. So I'm very optimistic that in the in terms of upper limb bionics for below the elbow, we are going to see uh, a fairly uh, significant average price decrease over time, right. which
0: makes it more accessible. No, that, that sounds great. Actually, I was just going to say, because we've thrown a lot of, of costs uh, throughout this, 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 this interview. So I was just wondering if you could sort of tablize for us The ranges of cost for for the different uh, prosthetics.
1: Yeah, so uh, the on the hand side, then we go from eight thousand, the lowest uh, priced one, uh, up to I believe it's uh, I think it's about seventy thousand for the Michelangelo. Uh, so that's kind of the range. We, we have a, a bonic hand price list. So all the devices are listed on there. Now we put them in categories. So below 10,000, 10 to 25,000, 25 to 50,000 and above 50,000. Um, so that's kind of the ranges for uh, the, the, the below the elbow solutions. When you get into uh, the above the elbow solutions, If I go to the other end of the scale, I talked about these two modular arms, the the, uh, Luke arm and uh, what will be the uh, Atom Touch. Um, These are uh, arms that can be configured. They're they're all made by the same company, configured just just for usage for the hand, uh, wrist, elbow, uh, or actually the shoulder. And they, in generally in price range, uh, the Atom Touch is gonna be between 50 and 100,000. So that depends on which components you're using, right? So if it's just the hands, it'll be closer to 50,000. If you're using the full arm, it'll be closer to 100,000. The the Luke arm is uh, has traditionally been uh, only used by uh, the military, and the price ha- that has been given is roughly a hundred thousand. But now that they have a commercial uh, version of it of, from Mobius Bionics, and they are direct competitors, they were, I mentioned they were both from the DARP program. They're direct competitors. I suspect the pricing for the Luke arm is going to be similar to the touch. So depending on which which components you're using, somewhere between fifty and hundred hundred thousand the tricky part is the elbows so mm-hmm. i know the price i know the list price of the elbows um and the, the the prices i've been giving you are the net price to to the end consumer so the list price is the price that the manufacturer sells to the um uh Clinics. The clinic yeah. yeah and they get marked up and this is where it gets complicated uh, because the way that prostitutes charge is they have to put their, their charges in the U.S. They have to put them under certain codes um, and uh, they don't actually uh, get to charge you anything aside from what's allowed in those codes and the, their, their price limit is set. So while well, it's easy to talk about um, the final sort of net cost the of the hand, when you talk about the elbow as well, the markup from the prosthetist, um, it, you know, is going to be not, the same. In other words, you can't talk about the elbow and say, well, the markup for the elbow is X, because the elbow is going to be combined with a hand. And you know, there's probably going to be some discount in there. And that's what's hard for me to put my finger on, is is um is how that all works out. And I think it varies from prosthesis it varies on the solution, and and we're working on that. Because what I'd what I'd really love to do, by the way, is I'd love to just give the the you know the list price of all these devices to the end consumer so they know what the manufacturer is selling to the prosthetist. But In a way, that's unfair too, because um, say if you're in the US, let's say that you see three people and you go through the whole process and invest all the time and money to prep three people to buy devices and two of them walk away, you get nothing. You get zero. There's no fees charged because you can only be charged with a delivered device. And so uh, from the process standpoint, it's say one sale per three people. I, I don't know if those ratios are correct. I'm just trying to sort of a demonstrative principle. Um, but from the individual user, you might look at that and say, well, you know, this device costs $25,000. The process is just charged me 50000 That's excessive. And so, you know, we, we try to be careful about how we release prices because we don't want to create sort of conflicts that are unfair because we can't properly explain all the all the elements in it. And uh, I'm struggling with that, to be honest with you. I
0: want to get them. I want to get the oval prices out there. I just I'm just struggling for the right way to do it. Yeah, no, I um I can see that, because again, different markets, different, different charges, different. You know, look uh, to your point. Even uh, depending on how many people's work in there, how much the building lease costs. Right, those are all parts of uh, the labor that's part of of that cost.
1: Yeah, and in a way, I mean, the 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 in a way, the coding system in the U.S. the the the, the whole billing system with Medicare, and, uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Um, is a bit a part of the problem. Um, uh, just because, you know, if, if um, let, let's turn this around and said, uh, you know, uh, my own feeling was, if we had like national insurance programs uh, for, for uh, limb differences, uh, for, for these prostheses, uh, where, you know, uh, if you are below the elbow or you're above the elbow that you get you know, a certain budget, you get a budget as a user. And you could take that budget to any process and spend it however you want. We would have a free market. Right? And, and that free market would, would probably, you know, my feeling would, would be that the prices would probably come down in that kind of a competitive environment. When you have a process that's driven primarily by someone who's just done, for the most part, uh, if it's an accident or disease, they've just gone through a traumatic experience. Suddenly they have to go sit in a prosthetist's office. You know, they're dealing with like a ton of stuff that might be work related, might be personal, just the trauma of losing a limb. And, and they're sitting in an office, and they're told they have to go through an insurance process, which is very complicated, you know, requires a lot of forms, requires expertise from the process, requires a representative from the manufacturer, and is dealing with some kind of an insurance executive that's, you know, 100 or 1000 kilometers away. I mean, all of that is very overwhelming, you know, and, and it's not exactly putting them as a consumer in a, tr- in a strong position. I wish at some point we, we have like a program that says, no, there's your budget. The budget's adequate for you to get the devices you need, plural, and you as a consumer go and spend that uh, in a way that you see
0: fit. I think that would make for a much more transparent industry. Do you think that would work, or I'll say that again. Do you think Canada is ahead of that? No, I don't. Uh, I can't, you know,
1: Canada is complex because it has different provincial uh, departments. My problem in Canada is that um, the dollar amounts that are allowed for these things are very poor. I, I don't think there's any of uh, the provinces that are, that um, uh, approve of myelectric devices unless there's certain conditions met. And I think the conditions are too strict. Um, I know that like in the UK, the NHS recently just approved uh, the use of uh, microprocessor knees, so paid for by the government. Uh, I, I'm not sure about each of the provinces. I'm not sure we're at that stage because I, everybody I read about in Canada, you know, it's the war amps or it's other charities or fundraising routines for people to get these more advanced devices. And so, you know, I, I guess in, in the Canadian healthcare system, uh, because it's, it's um, you know, supposed to be free and we pay for it with our taxes, but the government pays the bill. I just think they need to expand the budgets, greatly expand the budgets for these things and, uh, and take some of the restrictions off and uh, j- just say that when somebody comes in, who's below the knee amputee, uh, well, we'll talk about the upper, upper, I guess mm-hmm. when somebody comes in, who's, who's, whether they'd be below or above the elbow or whatever that, they, you know, there's a sizable enough budget there to get the right devices.
0: Right. And again, that's, you know, to my point earlier, it's, it's not just setting up people for success, right? Yeah.
1: It's, it's a common sense, you know, it's, 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 um, it's bothersome because I think the value system of most Canadians, uh, is that they they would agree with that wholeheartedly, that approach, right? And it's like it's like the disability, um, uh, is it ODSP? I, f- I forget the acronym, but it's the amount of money that is given to people with disabilities. But I, th- I think it works out to be in like half the poverty level or something, right? It's, it's just no common sense behind it. In other words, most of us as Canadians would say, look, somebody's in an accident, you know, they're in a wheelchair and they've got to go through a transition period to, you know, to, to, to find a new or a varied career or a different schedule or a different plan or something, you know, just our common sense is let's have a transition plan there and sufficient funding to make this, I think you, you, you said it earlier, set them up for success. Well, we're not doing that in terms of, of, of the disability supplements and
0: we're not doing that in terms of our, our prosthesis. Right. No, that's, that's a really good point. Now, once, when I want to go back to Bionics for Everyone. So Bionics for Everyone often releases uh, research they guys are doing okay. on the technology in prosthesis. Um, and the website continues to get updated with a lot of information. Where do you see, or I guess, can you give us sort of a short synopsis of what's in store for prosthesis in upper limb?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's some really exciting stuff going on. So as we talked about in the beginning, I mean, we're never really going to restore the, the sort of true dexterity and usefulness of, of uh, uh, a bionic hand. We're never going to create that, that dexterity and usefulness of a bionic hand until we solve a couple of problems. One of them appears to be have been theoretically solved. And this is the notion of proprioception. So we recently wrote an article on something called, uh, uh, I think it's agonist-antagonist myoneural interface. AMI for short. And it's a brilliant uh, thing. I don't know if you've you ever heard of Hugh Herr, mm-hmm. the inventor of MIT. I mean, he's been, he was the one who created the Empower Ankle. He's created the Rio knee. Uh, just a number of brilliant breakthroughs. Well, this is another one. So what they discovered was that, you know, every, every joint in our body is controlled by a pair of muscles an agonist and an antagonist. And uh, as one contracts, the other one stretches. And what they realize is that um, the body's sense of uh, itself, like a limb in space, its position and its movement, and its torque is based on the dynamic between these muscle pairs. So when we have an amputation, of course, the muscle pairs are severed for whatever joint has been amputated. And uh, as a consequence of that, the body loses its sense of that the, the limb, the phantom limb. It doesn't have a sense of where it is in space. So the brilliant thing, now they've only done this for lower limbs, but, but the theory is that it'll work for all, all limbs, is in the amputation surgery, they're now creating, recreating these muscle pairs. They're just connecting the muscle tissue. And so from the brain standpoint, um, if you're going to move, and I'll use the lower limb as an example, like because it's not, not the upper limbs yet, but if you're going to move your ankle joint, like your foot, your foot up and down, your brain sends a signal down to this muscle pair, the muscle pair moves. So, so one is contracting, one is stretching. Uh, And that uh, muscle movement generates a signal that goes back through the nervous system to the brain. And that's how the brain keeps track of the position of that foot, right? So even though the, even without connecting a, a prosthetic, no bionic foot on there, we've recreated proprioception. Because you know, if that user closes their eye and, and the, the, the mental map, they still retain that 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 phantom limb, that mental map of the foot, and they think to themselves, "I got to move my foot up." Then the muscle pair responds, and it gives the the, the 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 signal back to the brain. The brain says, "Oh yeah, I know that your foot's pointing upward because of the tension on the on the antagonist muscle." And if it points downward, then it's the opposite the case, right? Okay. So, so they and this, by the way, even again, without attaching a prosthesis has, has addressed uh, at least in the early studies, seems to address a a portion, a good portion of phantom pain, phantom limb pain. So then what they did is they said, okay, well, we can recreate this now in the residual limb. Then all we need to do is put these uh, sensors in the muscles and detect the signals of these movements of these muscle pairs. And then we just need to calibrate the bionic device to move, uh, in sort of correlation to the muscle pair movement. Okay. So what's really happening there is you, so you move, you move your, your phantom foot pointed upward, but that gets detected. The muscle movement gets detected by the myoelectric sensors, gets passes a command to the bionic foot, the bionic foot, foot moves up. This all happens in a split second, right? So from the standpoint of the brain, you are, you have restored the proprioceptive sense of your foot And it's actually the bionic foot that you've restored it for, even though it's kind of indirect. Now, and the final closure of that loop is that your eyes see the foot move. So your brain kind of, think of it, your brain feels the foot move and your eyes see the foot move and you get that closed loop. Okay. And this is just brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant, which is pretty much sums up everything Hugh Herr does. Um, So, you know, right away, when we talk about that complex fine motor skills that are required to control upper limbs, we want to see AMI successful and we want to see extended to the upper limb because this would be a game changer. This would be like you're able to reach out, uh, say you get up in the middle of the night or, or you wake up in the middle of the night and you reach out uh, to turn on your night lamp, right? Well, your your brain remembers the 3D map of the room and now it would have a, a sense of where your your hand was and you could move that hand to the lamp. Now, you still can't feel the switch right but you can move it to the lamps you got to the right spot so we're sort of 90 percent of the way there okay that's one one thing i think we're doing uh we're going to end up doing um the the second thing is we need sensory feedback we need sensory feedback in hands and we're talking about uh, contact we're talking about pressure we're talking about texture ability to sense shape all those other things uh, temperature These are all in process. Um, There's some developments on the electric skin side that are very exciting. Uh, And now the question is, how do we communicate this to the brain? Right now, the uh, sort of mainstream solution is called the neural interface. And what they're really doing is they're taking electrodes and they're surgically implanting them um, and they're intersecting or or wrapping them around nerve bundles and they're stimulating them electrically to, to trick the brain into thinking that it's feeling something. So the problem is these surgeries are very, very precise. Um, and there's also some da- you know, risk of neural damage if you if it, the surgery is quite uh, uh, delicate. Uh, and then the other problem is you make it scarring and interfering with signals. So there's some drawbacks to it. But the principle is you stimulate the nerve, you trick the brain into thinking. So your finger touches something, your bionic finger touches something, your brain thinks your bionic finger touched it, and so on. Um, the, the problem is, again, precision. So what's happening is that... Uh, You touch something with your bionic finger, but because the the stimulation of the nerve isn't precise enough, your brain thinks your pinky touched it. Uh, That's a problem with dexterity. And a recent study proved it was somewhat disappointing that unlike the plasticity of the brain for so many things, it is very stubborn when it comes to its body map. So even though it sees you with a bionic finger touching something with your forefinger, it doesn't remap it. It still interprets that stimulation uh, as your pinky. Okay, so the, the, the dexterity is coming, but they've got to work the kinks out of that. Now, another alternative, I think it was the University of Pittsburgh um, or Pennsylvania uh, recently uh, discovered that you can recreate uh, sensations in bionic limbs, like, like hands, uh, through um, the spine. And I forget the condition, but there's a, there's a very common uh, condition where uh, they have an outpatient uh, procedure. Uh, where they uh, stimulate the spine, they inject something to stimulate the spine for a different purpose. Uh, But the idea here is if this is an outpatient procedure, not this kind of surgery that we just discussed, the true neural interface, and you can equally stimulate um, the hand, that we might have a route that way to give that sensory feedback. One way or the other, though, that sensory feedback has to be restored. Because to go back to our example, we could use the restored proprioceptive sense to guide our hand in the dark to the light. But in order to turn that switch, we gotta be able to feel what part of the light we came in contact with the lamp and then feel our way to the button and then press the button on. That's possible if you have that sensory feedback. And this is where, uh, between that and the pattern recognition, the AI driving the pattern recognition, this is where almost all of the research dollars are going right now, okay? They're driving that to recreate all of those sort of elements of, of absolute control and sensory feedback. Wow, that's that sounds ex- really exciting. Um, it is ex- exciting, and uh, by the way, not to get—I'm pretty excited about it, so I get pumped up. But the Atom Touch, like I said, is is the, the, the commercial uh, evolution of what was the modular prosthetic limb from John Hopkins University. This coming out in 2022, I said is the most advanced bionic cam we've ever seen. It has over 200 sensors. Okay, uh, it's waterproof. It's dustproof. It has awareness of position. In space, it has it has um, pressure and contact. They're working on a way. Now it requires surgery in order to implement all those things, but they're working on a non-surgical method of doing that, and they're also working on temperature detection. So we don't have to wait that long. It's just a year and change, and we're going to see maybe the first hand that
0: that takes a giant leap in this area. Wow! Again. There's just a lot of new things coming out, and and, um, and I thought I was, you know, I thought I was up to date. But uh, thank you to guys like you who uh, who keep these kinds of, uh, of research uh, forward uh, for us. Uh, I guess not so um, scholarly, <laughs> but um, but you know, advocate. And, and I always say this to people, um, you know, especially the NFTs. Research, research, research. Um, because that's the only way you can advocate for yourself, knowing what's yeah. available and what's out there for you as well, right?
1: And and also to plan your your roadmap ahead, because you can imagine if if, if you're somebody who's who's facing potentially uh, an amputation, uh, especially say in the lower limb, uh, and you know about AMI. And you, you have a choice. You say, well, you know, I can do this or I can hold off for a year. Well, if you know about AMI and you know that AMI is advancing and, they're, and they've got these trials going on and you can maybe participate in the trial or maybe you can postpone the amputation for a year as that becomes mainstream and the technique is passed to other surgeons. You know, my answer to you, if, if AMI pans out the way it looks like it's going to and it becomes available, if you whatever you can do, get that done. Even if you're not going to, going to uh, you know attach a bionic uh, prosthetic right away um, and get it done because then you'll have that proprioceptive mechanism uh, there. Um, as far as by the way about our articles you know um, I get pumped up and sometimes I, I throw these words around but the truth is when it comes to bionics I am a layperson. right I'm not a research scientist I'm not, not an engineer um, so this was all new to me a year and change ago uh, so we, we really emphasize writing uh, our articles in layperson language. Right? because our only constituent, we don't, we don't accept advertising from bionic companies. We don't accept money of any kind, any shape uh, form form from any of the products that we write about. So our only constituent is the end user. And that's what those articles are meant to do. They're meant, you know, we have a model. I don't think, we think we borrowed this from somewhere, but an informed patient is an, is an empowered patient. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make sure that the person uh, who's, who's, who's uh, you know, looking for a bionic limb or, or a prosthesis and wants to explore a bionic uh, option are completely armed with all the information that they require so that when they sit in front of that prosthetist, they can ask the questions and end up with the right device. Because I think, as I mentioned to you, there are many different forms of AI and control systems. And generally speaking out of 15, there's going to be one, one that's the perfect match for your residual limb, just because of the way you are and the way that the way the control system is. You can't find that one unless you have enough knowledge to press your pr- prosthesis to say, you know, if, if you're not satisfied with, say, a test that's done, for you to raise your hand and say, hey, what about the other device that I read about?
0: You know, you need to have that knowledge to press, to press folks. And um, that's what we're hoping to do. All right. Now that's perfect. So where can people connect with you and uh, find Bionics for Everyone? So Bionics for Everyone is uh, just Bionicsforeveryone.com. It's our
1: website. You can access all of our articles on there. Uh, We're also present on um, uh, Twitter. Uh, We're present on Facebook. We're we're heavily present on Facebook. In fact, we participate in something like 24, 25 amputee support groups. Uh, We're on LinkedIn and we're on Instagram. So you can, you can contact me uh, through the website or through any of those social media uh, platforms.
0: Awesome. I know that uh, myolectic or bionic prosthesis looks really cool, um, but it can be very daunting to learn about. So it is great that, um, I, like I said, Bionics for Everyone has compiled a great resource and knowledge area to fill the gaps that sometimes missed when discussing bionic uh, prosthesis. There's a lot of information on the website, so make sure you check that all out. I want to thank Wayne Williams at Bionics for everyone for joining me today. I'll share the links on my website at www.airstyledomingo.com. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any comments, questions, or show ideas, please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at The MBTO Show. Until next time, I'm your host, Airstyle Domingo, and this has been The MBTO Show Podcast.